weekend that we get to celebrate Christ's birth. Um, when I was growing up, I had grandparents on both sides that were alive, and so we got Christmas gifts from both sets of grandparents. Now, my grandparents on my dad's side, um, there was lots of grandkids. They had lots of kids. Uh, my family alone, there's nine. So uh, they had to be uh, very thoughtful on what they would give because that's a lot of gifts. So every year, uh, we got pajamas, okay? Um, when you're a 12-year-old boy, uh, pajamas just, sorry, Grandma, this is not the best gift, okay? I'm just like, just putting it out there. Other uh, side, my mom's side, um, they uh, would get us sweaters. Now, at first blush, that might seem like not a very good gift either, especially when grandma's picking out your sweater. However, uh, my grandma always bought sweaters when they went on clearance in mid to late January after Christmas. She always bought them at JCPenney, and it really didn't matter what the sweater looked like. She was just hoping that you might still fit into it by the next Christmas, okay? Now, she didn't ever give us the receipts, but the tags were still on the sweaters. So you knew how much the sweater cost originally, but you also knew grandma probably paid like 10% of whatever was on the tag. This was the great part about it, though. You see, we never intended to keep the sweaters that grandma gave us. We knew that we could go to the mall, go to JCPenney, and we could return the sweater. We didn't have the receipt, okay? But JCPenney, back then, did not have a great computer system to remember how far back a year ago those sweaters actually cost. All right? They didn't know. And so you would hand them the sweater. They would say, do you have the receipt? You'd say, no. And they would say, let me check it and see in the system. It would not be in the system anymore. Too old. And then they would just give us whatever the sweater cost. It was amazing. Some years I would get like $60 or more to JCPenney. I knew my grandma didn't spend more than like 10 bucks, all right? That some gifts, some gifts are better than others, aren't they? Uh, my brother certainly thought so. Uh, this is a picture of uh, my family when there was just the five of us. Uh, my brother Dante, uh, he's the one that I've got my arms around. I'm the top right up there, if you couldn't tell. Uh, after this picture was taken, there were still four more kids that were added to the Scott family. Uh, so as you can imagine, uh, Christmas was an, uh, an expensive affair for my parents. So they made sure to budget the same amount for each child. Each child got the same amount of gifts, and they spent basically the same amount of money on all of us. My brother, though, somewhere around that age, uh, heard about the big gift. Uh, my parents would always have like one of the gifts that we would get. Each kid would get was like their big gift. My brother heard that, though, and he assumed that they meant the big gift was the biggest gift, okay? And so he would every year look around the tree, and he would notice who's getting the big gift, all right? It just meant the one that was in the biggest box. But to him, the big gift had to be the best gift. And he just assumed that my parents must take turns every year giving the big gift to one of the kids. And he kept waiting every year to get the big gift. 
And every year it went to another one. He kept wondering, like, why are they overlooking me? Why do they keep skipping me? I never get the big gift. And he was so torqued about it, but he's too nice to ever say anything. So he never said anything. It wasn't until, and I kid you not, my junior, no, his junior or senior year in high school, that he finally realized that the biggest gift is not the big gift or the best gift, all right? We give him grief to this day. In fact, literally for I think the next two or three years, we would wrap all of his gifts in the largest boxes possible just so that he could feel good about finally getting the big gift. Bigger isn't always better. Better is always better, right? Now, uh, if you were walking around Botswana and you kicked over this rock, you would think, ah, all right, cool, a chunk of carbon. But then if right next to it, you also found this rock, you'd be pretty excited. Uh, in fact, you'd probably take the one rock and throw it at a tree, and you'd take the other rock, and you'd run right away to the jeweler. Sometimes the most valuable gifts come in shapes and sizes that we don't expect. Uh, the true test of genius, maturity, intelligence is are you able to recognize which ones are truly valuable and which ones you ought to chuck at a tree? So it is with Christmas. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open up to Luke chapter 2. We're going to be reading the story of Jesus' birth. The Messalinks did such an awesome job reading that to us uh, this morning. Um, now, I'm going to do my best to not... Uh, many of you, you, you guys probably all have like nativity sets. A lot of you probably have nativity sets at home. We've got, I think, like three or four different nativity sets. Okay, uh, Most of them uh, look something like a, a wooden kind of like stable barn area with uh, animals. You got Mary and Joseph and uh, little baby Jesus is chilling in that, you know, wooden manger with the hay. Uh, you probably have a, a bunch of animals, but some shepherds. Um, and then there's probably also three wise men, even though they don't show up for like another year and a half. They're always at our nativities. Now, I'm not going to try to destroy your precious nativity set this morning, uh, but I am hopefully going to help us understand maybe a little bit more clearly what's actually happening on that day some 2,025 years ago. You're like, wow, that's a really specific number, Torin. Yes, it is. And I'm not sure that that's exactly right, but I do think that it's pretty doggone close. Let's read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and we'll work through the story like that. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. If you uh, are reading in an NIV, you'll see a little note that also says it could mean, or this census took place before Quirinius was governor of Syria. There's a whole debate on what's actually happening here with this particular census. In fact, this is one of the passages that uh, liberal scholars will point to and say, well, the Bible doesn't get everything right. Because in Matthew, we actually learn that Herod the Great was ruling over all of Israel. In fact, they called him King Herod. 
Herod actually dies in 4 BC. So Jesus has to be born before 4 BC, or at least 4 BC. We think it was probably somewhere between 6 and 4 BC. A lot of you are like, wait a minute. I thought BC meant before Christ. How's that possible? Well, it doesn't mean that. AD, Anodomini, means the year of our Lord. They had a little bit of their maths wrong, okay? And he's probably born 5 BC, give or take a year on either side. Now, uh, Luke talks about this particular census. We don't have any record in the ancient world of a census taking place while Herod is actually still ruling. In fact, Quirinius wasn't the governor of Syria until 6 or 7 AD, but 10 years later, maybe 11 years later. So a lot of scholars will say, oh, see, the Bible gets it wrong. Luke's just saying whatever he wants to say. But one of the things that we have found about Luke is that Luke is meticulous in his history. Uh, Luke not only writes the gospel, Luke, he also writes the book of Acts. And there's been uh, numerous studies and excavations, archaeological expeditions that have taken place trying to disprove the book of Acts, only to find that what Luke wrote, to their surprise, actually was exactly spot on. So there's a whole host of different ways that we think uh, what Luke was doing. One option the NIV gives us here is that maybe the Greek, we're not translating it exactly right, that it's a little bit nuanced and we're not... Uh, another option is that Luke's actually writing about a census that is mentioned before the one in 6. We know one happened. In fact, maybe he says, the reason he says first is because he's talking about a census that happened before the one that they all would have been thinking about in AD 6 or 7. We're not 100% sure, but there's no reason to doubt that what Luke says didn't take place. That does, though, put Jesus at around... 5, 4 BC, okay? Now, let's continue reading. Everyone went to their own town to register. Verse 4, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now, uh, Nazareth is in the northern part of Israel. I'm going to show you a map. We'll throw it up on the screen. Um, we don't know a whole lot about Mary's parents. Uh, there is a church tradition uh, that Jehoiakim and Anne uh, were Mary's parents. Uh, we don't actually get that from any biblical text. It's actually a non-biblical text uh, that comes out a couple hundred years later. Uh, we're not real sure. That's Catholics. Um, do, they've, they've made Jehoiakim and Anne saints. Um, we're, some wonder if even the genealogy in Luke chapter 3 is actually Mary's genealogy, whereas Matthew tells Joseph, Jesus' dad, maybe Luke is telling. Scholars are kind of not sure on that one. We think it's probably Joseph's genealogy, but just told from a different perspective. You're like, how is it possible to tell a genealogy from a different perspective? Well, uh, sometimes when you would say the father of this son, they, it could be generations between. So he could be talking about very specific people that he wants to uh, connect to Jesus' genealogy so that we can understand uh, what Luke is doing and explaining that Jesus is the Messiah coming from the line of David. Uh, 
Here's some interesting stuff that I found. We don't know, okay? This is just conjecture, all right? But if you see Nazareth up there, you'll see just a little bit above it and to the left is uh, Sephorus, Sephorus, okay? Uh, this is actually around Jesus' time as he's growing up, becomes the, the kind of uh, seat of Galilee, like the capital of Galilee. Uh, after Herod the Great dies, uh, his kingdom's kind of divided among his sons. Herod Antipas is one of his sons, and he rules the region of Galilee, which is all that yellow stuff. Okay, you see it up there, it says Galilee. And Sephorus was on a major trade route, and it actually became this beautiful city. In fact, you can go there today, they talk about the Mona Lisa of Sephorus. Uh, there's these beautiful mosaics that are there, you can still see them to this day. Um, as they've done archaeology. Uh, Nazareth is kind of this backwater town. A lot of people would say, like, oh, what, could, what, what good could come from Nazareth? In fact, that's what they say about Jesus at one point. Like, how is he so intelligent? Like, we don't get it. Well, uh, Joseph, Jesus' father, we think was, well, we know that at least his ancestors hailed from Bethlehem. This is why he has to go back. But a lot of scholars think he may have actually even grown up in Bethlehem, which, as you see, is like way down south. You see Jerusalem in Judea. Bethlehem's uh, about five miles south of, four to six miles south of Jerusalem. Uh, Joseph might have grown up down there. In fact, one of the reasons Joseph might have to go back there to register is he might actually have inherited some land from his family there. But at the time, he's living up in Nazareth. This is where he meets Mary. What's he doing up in Nazareth? Well, it's very possible that he's working in Sepphoris. Some say Sepphoris, some say Sephorus, but you see it up there. Uh, they're building tons and tons of stuff at this time. Uh, Joseph is a tecton, all right? That just means a craftsman, someone who builds things. Uh, we usually assume, because uh, Jesus is as well, Jesus is brought up in the family business, uh, Jesus and Joseph quite likely would have worked on building some of the huge buildings and roads and the marketplace and the theater and all that stuff that's there in Sepphoris because that's what they did. They worked with stone. They probably worked with wood. They were artisans, craftsmen. And so when people are like, yo, how could Jesus be this smart? How could he know the things that he knows? Well, he was probably working all the while he's growing up in what is basically the capital of Galilee. Now, do we know that for fact? No, we're not 100% sure. But it makes sense based on what Jesus did, what Joseph did, and where they were. Uh, Joseph and Mary meet somewhere in Nazareth. They may possibly have even met in Sepphoris while Joseph is up there potentially working. Now, uh, Joseph has to go back to Bethlehem. All we know is that at least, if nothing else, it's the city uh, it's where David, King David, was originally born, and so that's where his family would have been. So Mary, it's interesting, goes with him. She didn't have to go with him to be registered, but probably because of the fact that she is very, very pregnant. We're talking third trimester, exactly where. We're not 100% sure. This sometimes kind of blows our minds because we have all these like ideas in our head of what happened on that. Like She's literally about to burst with a baby, and they come rolling up, 
into the town and they knock at the, you know, Motel 6 and the manager comes out and he's like yelling at him like, get out of here, I don't have any room for you. And then they have to go over to like a barn, you know, somewhere and it's just like a bunch of like cattle and sheep and a random camel and, uh, I mean, this is like the image that we have in our heads. I'm not trying to like destroy that image, but I'm kind of trying to destroy that image. So let's keep looking together, okay? Now, it's interesting. Uh, let's flip to the next uh, slide. This is another map. It shows Nazareth up at the top. It doesn't show uh, Sepphoris, which would be just a little bit north and, and, and west of that. Um, but it shows the route that they would have taken to get down to Bethlehem. Now, the quickest route would be to go through the mountains and all the highlands, but that would have been the hardest route. And that almost takes just as much time. And so we think they didn't probably take the black route, but they took the green route, which actually then kind of goes along the Jordan Valley. It would have been a little bit longer to travel, but much easier traveling, not nearly as rocky up and down. And this route, though, as you can see, uh, is not close. This is uh, uh, 50, 60 mile, 50, 60 miles. It would have taken them probably four to five days to travel from Nazareth all the way down to Bethlehem. This is a fairly arduous trek. Uh, again, we don't know if she's riding on uh, a donkey. All right, that's kind of the common, the text never says that. Mary, did you know? Uh, the donkey didn't know, I can tell you that. So um, they're coming down and they arrive and we pick up the story now here in verse 6. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. So a couple of things that we now learn about that first Christmas. Uh, we know that Mary is about to give birth. Okay, she's in the third trimester. Uh, we have this thing set up in our mind that she shows up and that night, like they roll into town and that night she gives birth. We don't know that that's the case just says that they were there, and then when the time came. So could they have been there uh, that day they show up and she gives birth? Maybe. They could have been there uh, a week or two. We're not 100% sure at this time. But it was fairly close from the time that they arrived. Now, we also assume that there is this angry innkeeper. The problem is, is that there's nothing about an inn or an innkeeper in the Bible. Uh, the NIV has actually finally changed it. If you have an older NIV or you're reading out of the King James, it talks about them going to look at an inn. The better translation is guest room. Okay, It would be, quite honestly, unheard of for a Jewish couple, especially a kosher Jewish couple that was trying to keep the law, to stay in a place that Gentiles might also stay because they would become ritually unclean. They would never want to do that, especially knowing that they were going to have a baby. It was also shameful to show up in a Jewish town and not be offered hospitality. It would have been way more shameful to show up in your hometown where you most likely have family, at least, at the very least, distant cousins, relatives. It would have been to their shame to have not housed you, especially if your betrothed 
Mary is about to give birth. Uh, They didn't wind up giving birth, we don't think, in some barn out away from everybody else. They were probably staying with family. Now, they're staying with family, but there's also other family that's already there. The guest room is full. There's no place for them in the guest room. Uh, Most first century homes would have had uh, the first floor would have been uh, like dirt and the animals would often come in at night to sleep there. Uh, That's where they would have had uh, the manger where the hay would have been. And then on the second floor is where the family who lived in the house would sleep. Most of their cooking and things were done on the first floor, but then they slept on. And then they would often on the roof, they would have a little guest room, a place that if you had a visitor, you could house them for the night. The guest room's full. We don't know who's there. Maybe Joseph's older brother's already, already there and his family, but there's no room for them in the guest room, so they have to sleep on the first floor. Now, they wouldn't have just had pigs walking around while Mary's given birth. They would have moved them out, tied them up, but Mary is there on the first floor, and that's where she has to give birth. Quite honestly, it's probably with some of Joseph's female cousins, whoever it was, his family's there. The dudes get kicked out while she's giving birth. They're kind of, you know, walking around out on the street and they're hearing everything. Like, that's the scene that is most likely to what's taking place here in Luke chapter 2 little different than we often think. In fact, when we think of the manger, this is usually what we think of, right? It's this cute wooden thing. If it's in your nativity, it might even have a little bit of garland on it or something. That's not what a first century manger would have looked like. This is what a first century manger actually looks like. That's a picture that I took when I was actually in Jerusalem uh, about a year and a half ago. It was made out of stone. In fact, some homes, especially in the Bethlehem region, which is really, really hilly, all right, there's not a lot of flat ground, so there's not like the square homes that other places may have had. Theirs would have been built into the side of the hill. Often, they had to carve mangers out of the rock. And so the manger was the place that the animals would have been fed. Some even had it carved into the stone, like in the the bottom. Jesus would have laid in something like that. Another thing that we actually uh, find out as we're looking through this is that the shepherds are out in the field watching the sheep at night. Uh, This tells us that Jesus was probably not born December 25th. (gasps) I know, it's okay. Now, look, uh, probably a number of you have already heard this before. This is probably not new news. Uh, We actually started celebrating Jesus' birthday on December 25th about a couple hundred years after uh, Jesus lived, okay? Uh, It was thought at the time that prophets or someone like Jesus would have been uh, conceived on the day that he died. And at the time, they said March 25th was the day that Jesus died, and therefore Jesus had to have been conceived on March 25th as well. And if you go nine months from March 25th, you land... December 25th, exactly. So there's a lot of uh, stuff floating around. In fact, you'll read this and a lot of, even like history.com will tell you this, okay? Um, The reason that Christians celebrate December 25th is because uh, that was a pagan celebration. And as they were trying to make Rome become Christian, they decided that it would be easier. Instead of getting rid of a pagan celebration, they would just change it 
and they would call it Christ's birth, and that way everybody could still party like they wanted to, but now it would be for a different reason. Instead of uh, celebrating Sol Invictus, it would be to celebrate Jesus Christ. That's not good scholarship. It preaches really well, I guess, at a school or something, but we actually have record of Christians celebrating on December 25th uh, before Sol Invictus, uh, this, this idea of celebrating uh, the, the sun's rebirth and this pagan festivals actually ever really took great root. Now, it doesn't mean that there was never any discussion about some of this stuff at the time, but to think that Christians just simply made it up so that we could then like take on some pagan holiday is just not accurate. Now, um, even if it was accurate, though, a lot of people freak out. We shouldn't celebrate Christmas because it's just a pagan holiday that we wrapped up. Well, the truth is we can redeem anything. Jesus probably wasn't born on December 25th, but it's absolutely fantastic that we've chosen a date to remind ourselves. Uh, because shepherds are in the field at night, we think it was probably in the fall or the spring. There's a couple different options here. Both of them are very interesting, actually. Uh, one option puts him uh, being born in the fall, maybe around the Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacles uh, was the time when they celebrated God's coming from heaven to tabernacle with them in the tent. It was when Israel was wandering around the desert, and God said, I'm going to be your God. Build me a tent, and I'm going to stay there. Uh, you set it up. Eventually, uh, when they get to Jerusalem, into the promised land, God then sets up his Shekinah glory in the temple itself. But they would have festivals, uh, the festival of tabernacles, uh, as a reminder that God was with them while they were going around. Wouldn't that be a cool kind of concept that now God is tabernacling with us again? We don't know for sure, but we do know it's probably either in the fall or the spring. Another thing, you've probably heard shepherds are the outcasts of society. That's why God goes to them, because he wants the outcasts to know. Well, it's true God wants the outcasts to know who he is. Shepherds are just your average Joes, okay? Uh, shepherds are the, the guy that uh, changes your oil. Uh, shepherds are uh, the ones that sell you insurance. They're the ones that are managing the Wendy's. Uh, they're the ones that are working the fact. Like, they're just average Joes. They weren't like outcasts. They weren't like the dredges of society. God comes to them because he wants everybody to know. It doesn't matter how high or how low you are in society, in culture, Christ has come for you. 9 through 20. Let's keep reading. You with me? All right, come on, here we go. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, and this will be assigned to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them they had gone and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph 
and the baby who, had been ly- who was lying in the manger, when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed and what the shepherds, uh, at what the shepherds had said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Just as they had been told. Now, uh, when the angels come, they announce that Jesus is, and they say three things. Number one, he's the Savior. Okay, A Savior is one who rescues. Number two, they say he is the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's set apart to do God's work. Prophets, priests, and kings were often anointed to be set apart to do God's work. Uh, Jesus actually embodies all three of those things, prophets, priests, and king. And then he says that uh, the angels also say that he is Lord, which means king, one who has authority, one who has power. He's Savior, Messiah, and Lord. Now, up until this point, Jesus' birth has been one of the most low-key, mundane, average, humble, like, This is not a big deal, nothing to write home about. And then when the angels show up, everything changes. But it's not at all how one would expect a king, let alone a savior king, let alone the son of God, king, savior, Jesus, creator, God in human flesh, king, savior of the world, Emmanuel, God with us, is here and almost Everybody missed it. Heaven didn't miss it. Mary and Joseph didn't miss it. The shepherds didn't miss it. The question that's put before us every single Christmas is will we? Will we? Every Christmas is an invitation to choose Jesus again. It's a reminder that Jesus has come and Jesus is coming again. And the question is posed, what will you do with that? You remember those two um, stones that I showed you a little earlier? Uh, The first one is just a hunk of carbon. The second one is a beautiful gleaming stone. The problem is the second one's a cubic zirconia. You can literally buy that bad boy off eBay for about 35 bucks. When I said one of those should be thrown at a tree and the other one should be run to the jeweler, the reason is because the other one that's still got carbon on it is actually the fourth largest, excuse me, third largest diamond ever found. It's the Suelo diamond found in Botswana last April of 2019. Uh, We think that one's worth about 50 million plus. Pretty easy to understand how it would be possible to miss it. In fact, there's a story of another diamond that was the largest diamond ever found. Looked just like that one. And they brought it to the manager of the mine who looked at it and thought it was a piece of junk and literally threw it through the window and yelled at the people for bringing it to him. Thankfully, they went and grabbed it and it's now part of the British Crown Jewels It's so easy sometimes to miss the greatest gifts given if we're not paying attention to what we're looking for. So many folks missed Jesus' birth when he first came because it wasn't what they expected. 
It wasn't with all the fanfare. It wasn't with all the nations throughout the world celebrating the birth of the new king. It was lowly and humble, and it was first announced to shepherds. Every year we celebrate Christmas here in America. Most people do, at least. But I still think most of us miss this gift. You see, the big gift is not always the most impressive gift. The big gift sometimes comes in a very different package. Jesus comes to us humbly. And he asks, will you receive me? He may not instantly change your present, but I promise you he will instantly change your future. The thing about gifts, though, is that they have to be accepted. My brother, even when he wasn't getting the big gift, still had to take the gifts he was given receive them, and open them. For the Suelo Diamond to be worth anything, it had to be mined and then claimed. And if you want to experience what Jesus actually offers, the greatest gift ever given, you have to accept him and worship him. What will you do with Jesus this Christmas? Let's pray. And sit in silence just for a minute as the band comes up. I think that question is a question God wants to ask each and every one of us. What will we do with Jesus this Christmas? Sit in silence and just simply allow God to ask that question. And then answer him as honestly as you can. Father God, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. He doesn't always come in the ways that we expect. Sometimes the gifts that he represents in our lives are maybe not the gifts that we're looking for. Maybe they're not as big and flashy as sometimes we wish, but God, if you will give us eyes of faith to see, we will recognize that everything Christ offers is everything we need. This Christmas, let us not miss the gift of Jesus. And Father, would you help us to not hoard the gift of Jesus? We love you. Thank you for this gift. Jesus, we receive you today.